Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this gray, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. One, I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. Two, I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But three, and this is key, I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe legal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music, which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean, I've learned a lot over the last two years, and who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now. So why should your present day ears be punished? Because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button. Anyway, without further ado, here's the podcast you came here for. Just slightly better. Thanks for listening. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kalia will edify you. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kalia are gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Hello and welcome to Pages and Popcorn Podcast, the podcast where two book nerds talk about movies that were based on books as well as the original source material. We will answer questions like, how are these two interpretations the same, how are they different, and are they even worth your time? But before we discuss today's book and movie combo, we have a few announcements. First off, we want to remind you to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Pages and Popcorn Podcast. And if you've been on our social media platforms recently, you might have noticed that we now have a Patreon account. So thank you so much to the lovely people who have signed up already to support us and our podcast. We love you all, obviously, all of you. And you can find out more about our Patreon and the perks of supporting us on our website, which is pagesandpopcornpodcast.com. Also on our website, you will find episode notes and all the ways that you can listen to the podcast with direct links to things like Spotify and iTunes, etc. We also want to let you know that you are welcome to emails at pagesandpopcornpodcast.com podcast at gmail.com. You can send your thoughts, your disagreements, your own answer to was that worth your time question. We will be doing a a special mailbag episode later in the year, and we might want to feature your email. Again, that email address is pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. And now, on with the show. Today we will be discussing The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. Do you want to start by how you came to it? Sure. I came to this book because in high school everybody quoted it all the time. And people wore backpacks and had labels and stickers and jean jackets with things embroidered on it. And it was just this thing that everybody talked about all the time. 
It and Monty Python got quoted, and also Full Metal Jacket, but that's more a reflection on the people I hung out with, all the freaking time. And then when I was in college, my boyfriend at the time was like, you have to read this book. And if you don't read this book, then you will not understand pop culture. And I said, you know what, I'm going to grant your premise because everybody's talking and quoting this book all the time. So I read the trilogy. And then I had done that. (laughs) Years later, the movie came out and we went and saw the movie and I saw it. And then years later, you said we should read this and do this. And I said, okay. And I reread the first book. And then I watched the movie. You went to a much cooler high school than I did. Nobody read this book except for me. Very indifference of opinions of cool. Um, there, there was one guy who was all about Tim Curry, and that was like... There was a lot of Monty Python, a lot of... There was a lot of Rocky Horror at my... There was a fair amount of Rocky Horror, but it was there was a lot of Monty Python and Are You Being Served, and a lot of British stuff at my high school that we was didn't not... didn't have as much access. Maybe oh. it's, you know, you're not that much younger than I am, but... What year did you graduate high school? 94. I graduated in 98. Okay. Not yeah, and it was different. a little bit, I guess, better. Nobody I, was on the internet, really, in high school. Like, we didn't have Google until I was in college. But it was... it was. Well, we couldn't get BBC, especially at where I lived. I There was no satellite. There was, oh, like, yeah. nothing. I don't know how people got exposed. I lived in a house that did not have a television, so I got exposed through other people, and I have no idea how people were getting exposed so, or why or whatnot. But, I mean, I had Monty Python at my house because my dad had them on records. We were at also a drive-in theater, and we were just kind of waiting for the, the movie to start, and we put it on NPR, and they were playing Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So we were first exposed to, like, the radio show back when I was, I don't even remember, I was, like, five or six. Wow. Yeah. And then, you know, my brother fell in love with it. This is one of his Christmas gifts to me. I'm holding up the leather-bound, gold-covered edition of the More Than Complete Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, we had audio tapes of it. Okay. So, Mine yeah. is also a black, yeah, hard-down... Like, mine's prettier. ...book. I'm sure it had a nice cover. It has... It- has some heft to it. Yeah, but mine's thicker. I sometimes mine's bigger than yours, Kaylee. Yours is bigger than mine. <laughs> sometimes it's not the size, Jennifer. <laughs> sometimes it is. Sometimes there's more stuff. So yeah. So anyways, like, you loved it forever. Who, yeah, I I remember doing a report on it in eighth grade, and yeah, it, it's it's one of those that I I was a huge fan, and then apparently we're going to have a little bit of a disagreement on some of this. Apparently. All right. So the book, the universe was created and this is largely thought to be a bad idea. I don't think you like British humor. Oh, yeah. Maybe we should start off with that. So I'm not super into <laughs> British humor. I've noticed. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. She said that line and then looked at me like I was about to giggle and I'm just sitting here waiting for her to finish. So, um, yeah, no, I don't know. Like, I, I don't really like British humor. I Okay. Save your hate or send your hate. I don't know. Whatever. It's fine. I, Monty Python's not my bag, baby. Austin Powers, not my bag, baby. British humor, not really my thing. So I know that colored this. Okay. So the big, the book begins with a hungover Arthur thinking yellow a number of times. It turns out that one of the yellows of that morning is a bulldozer about to knock his house down. A city councilman, a descendant of Genghis Khan, arrives at Dent's house to demolition it in order to build a bypass. Arthur's best friend, Ford Prefect, named after a British car, arrives, warning him of the end of the world. Ford convinces a workman to lie in front of the bulldozers, and the two pop off to the pub. Ford is revealed to be an alien who has come to the Earth to research for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Galaxy, an electric book to help a hoopy fruit get around. 
An alien race known as the Vogons, who are unpleasant, bad-tempered, bureaucratic, officious, and callous, show up to demolish the Earth in order to build a bypass for an intergalactic highway. Arthur and Ford manage to get onto the Vogon ship, no actual thumbs used, because aliens working as caterers hate the Vogons. The spaceship is kind of disappointing. Arthur has a mild crisis. Intro to the Babelfish. Babelfish can instantly translate all known languages into the uh, ear hole of the listener. And it's one of the proofs that God doesn't exist in a really interesting way. The Vogons find and torture them with the worst poetry in the universe. Arthur and Ford are ordered to say how much they like the poetry in order to avoid being thrown out of the airlock. And while Ford finds listening to be painful, depending on which adaptation you're listening to, Arthur believes it to be genuinely good since human poetry is apparently even worse or just as terrible. Or he's just as in pain as Ford. Arthur and Ford are then placed into the airlock and jettisoned into space. They will live for 30 seconds with a full lung of air. 29 seconds later, they are saved by the improbability drive aboard the Heart of Gold, Zepha Bibobrox's stolen ship. The Vogons destroy the Earth. It is a big, terrible silence, and then there is a big, terrible noise, and then there is a big, terrible silence. Zaphod, a semi-cousin of Ford, is the president of the galaxy and is accompanied by a depressed robot named Marvin and a human woman named Trillian. Ford and Zaphod are trying to outcool each other, but are outdone by authors we've met. So Arthur and Zaphod have some history. The story of Trillian is introduced, and Arthur cannot get a good cup of tea. The five embark on a journey to find the legendary the legendary planet known as Magrathea, a company that made luxury planets until it collapsed the economy of the universe. They are almost killed by the planet's defenses until Arthur intervenes and the improbability drive saves them. A patina and whale exist, and then they don't. On the surface, they split up. Arthur and Marvin are left behind by the others. Arthur meets Slarty Batfast, who works for Magrathea, and shows him about. Marvin is left behind until until much later. Trillian, Ford, Zaphod, and the White Mice explore the planet. Slarty Bartfast tells Arthur about Deep Thought, the ultimate answer, which is 42. The Earth is a computer, and also there are mice. And the mice are basically controlling everything because they are hyper-intelligent, pan-dimensional super beings. They reject the idea of building a second Earth to redo the process and offer to buy Arthur's brain and hope that it contains the question to the ultimate answer of life, the universe, and everything. Zephod saves Arthur when the brain is about when his brain is about to be removed. They are attacked by a compassionate, trigger-happy police. Marvin saves them when he plugs himself into the police computer, and the computer commits suicide, taking the police with it. The group decides to go to the restaurant at the end of the universe and the radio version they escape through the improbability to the restaurant in the end of the universe but they end up there at the end of this okay so in the movie the dolphins they're the ones who introduce the whole story with so long and thanks for all the fish there's kind of a bugsby berkeley broadway style dolphin sort of sing-along number kind of catchy if you like that sort of thing i do I didn't. <laughs> Arthur wakes up and runs out to lie in front of the bulldozer. There is no great dialogue that was in the book. Ford runs up with a grocery cart full of beer and grabs Arthur to go to the pub. At the pub, intro of Trillian and Arthur at a party. Uh, he, there's this little flashback. Trillian's kind of into him and she's adventurous. All goes well until some other guy with a cool line whisks her away. Arthur's house is being demolished. Aliens come demolish the earth. There is... The power of hitchhiking, actual thumbs were used. The Earth is destroyed with no sound or fanfare. Arthur and Ford wake up in a derelict ship. Ford tells Arthur, Your home is kind of blown up. An awkward hug ensues. You got to know where your towel is. And this is always a major theme in every single hitchhiker adaptation. You gotta know your towel. Intro of the Babelfish. Poetry torture, torture ensues. Arthur is not overly troubled by the poetry while it looks like Moe's death is having a seizure. Arthur tries to say how good the poetry is to save their lives. 
but they are jettisoned out of the airlock. Fern and Arthur are sofas until the probability realigns himself and they find themselves on the heart of gold. Zaphod intro. Trillion re-intro. Zaphod's extra head is below the original. The third arm is barely there. There's like a scene where he's making a drink and that's the only time you see it. Hamakavula is new and he's presented in the background of the television screen. This is a weird legless John Malkovich who is a very minor character in the book. Marvin the paranoid android is introduced. The Vogons go after Zaphod for stealing the heart of gold. Arthur notices the door is sighing. Marvin says hi and explains the existential uselessness of his life. Zephon and Ford hug with less awkwardness and more dorkishness. Arthur says, we've met. Vogons attack. Eddie, the shipboard computer, tries to help in his genuine cybernetics personality positive way. Intro of how the Heart of Gold is so awesome. Trillian takes Arthur on this little, oh my god, this is so amazing and isn't it fantastic? There are two white mice. Arthur and Trillian have a romantic moment. Zephon explains what he had to do to his brain. Which is, you know, why he's got kind of the two heads or some sort of bizarreness with the subplot. The story of deep thought and the answer to life, the universe, and everything. The answer is 42. So the timing of this is very different. Journey to Magathria via the improbability drive. The improbability drive turns them all into yarn. There are two more white mice. This is when we finally get the line of the universe was created. But they weren't taken to Magrathia. Instead, this is another plot divergent. They are on a new planet. There's a party going on. And there's this religion where the universe was sneezed by out by God. Bodiless Eyeless John Malkovich is Huma Kavula. And this is a very, very creepy scene. He wants them to steal a point of view gun. And takes one of Zaphod's heads as hostage. So Zaphod is back to having only the one head. Vogan's attack and save. Zephrod from the kidnappers, which, you know, they're saving him, I guess, from himself since he kind of kidnapped himself. Ford saves him with his towel. He goes over and, like, blinds Zephrod, and the creatures are so stupid, they don't realize that if you can't see them, then they can't see you, apparently. So Trillian attempts to save them with an aerosol can, but she is taken hostage. Arthur yells, Trillian! And shows his love and adoration. Um, the romantic plot continues. There are two white mice. Escape pod to the rescue. So they're after Trillian now that they're back on the Heart of Gold. Uh, when they're on the planet Vogosphere, they're hit in the head by these sort of semi-intelligent sort of weird creatures. It looks like the it's... Fly swatters. Yeah, they look like fly swatters. Um, and they look mechanical, but apparently they're a creature that just like smacks you in the head when you have an idea. There is a nice little thing with the book where they have jewel crabs. Trillian is held hostage by bureaucracy. They find out Zaphod signed the order to destroy the Earth. Arthur comes to the rescue. He says, I'm British. I know how to queue. He gets in line and bureaucracy ensues. Arthur saves Trillian with the power of expert form filing. Vogons were going to attack Zaphod and company, but they have to have a lunch break, and being the officious people they are, they can't attack until their lunch break is done. Arthur and Trillian love story continues. Trillian is dissolution with Zaphod. They get to Magrathia, the planet attacks, Arthur saves the day by pressing the Impala ability drive, and they're turned into yarn. They get to the planet, there's a dimensional portal. Trillian is kind of upset with the world, and so she jumps right in. Ford is up for anything, so he jumps in. Zaphod's like, hey, don't leave me behind, I like a party, so he jumps in, and Arthur is too cowardly, so so the portal closes before he actually goes. So he's stuck on the planet with Marvin. Uh, we have a lot of scene jumping between Trillian Ford and Zaphod, who find Deep Thought, and then we go back to Arthur, who meets Slotty Bartfast for the first time. They go on a tour. At first, it looks like a little rickety workbox, but then it's actually really cool. They go through the dimension that Magrathia is sort of encapsulating. So they see the, the actual building of planets. Very neat scene. Ford, Zillion, 
and Zephod are at Deep Thought. Deep Thought is watching a cartoon. The three are attacked. Scene changes to Arthur and Sorry About Forest. Uh, Sorry About Forest shows Arthur the wonders of the planet creation and the new Earth. Then we go back to the trio. They find the point of view gun. Uh, Trillian comes to terms with Zephod's stupidity and uses the gun on him to show him just how devastated she is by the Earth blowing up. Back to a scene change. Stop at a different Arthur's house. And while the others are there and eating, they were taken hostage by the mice. And now they're back at the little shack eating food. Uh, the food is drugged. Arthur is put into this little chair-like device, and the mice are basically going to take his brain, but Arthur breaks free, and he declares his love of Trillian, crushes the two mice with a tea kettle, and when he brings it up, they're actually the two little beings, which is kind of weird because they're intergalactic and dimensional, but we'll get into that. The Vogons attack, Marvin shows up, is shot, and saves the day with the point-of-view gun because he's so depressed, he makes them all depressed, and they just fall over. Then they decide to go to the restaurant at the universe, and there's a gag that they're going in the wrong direction. Restaurant of the Universe is not geographical. It is chronological. No, you only know that because you read the next book. Well, no, that's the whole point. That is the whole point of the Restaurant at the End of the Universe. There's no end to the universe. That's why it's chronological and not geographic. And there's, there's, this is a huge thing. This is an absolutely huge thing. Okay, I actually kind of liked that gag. Okay. I'm going to explain why that is so bad. No, it's not bad. It's, it's terrible. Okay. I feel like we have to start our discussion with a couple of premises. Okay. okay? One, just because somebody likes something doesn't make it good. And just because somebody doesn't like something doesn't make it bad. I'm going to start off with a slightly different premise because people do freak out about this book a lot. Yes. One is fine to change things. Douglas Adams changed things constantly because he was writing on the fly. And so the radio show has a bunch of stuff that didn't make it into the book. The book does a bunch of stuff. He added to it. He did a... And even Douglas Adams didn't like the last two books that he wrote, which was mostly harmless and so long and things for all the fish. But he did write work on the screenplay of this movie. He wrote a draft that is not the same as a finished product. No, but it's a starting point. It's a starting point. Okay. But I'm just going to say, you know, Douglas Adams, like, for him, the radio show was the one version that he liked the least during his lifetime. And that's part he didn't have a whole lot of control over it, or the one that he had the least amount of control. He was very controlling about his work. Okay. So, changes are okay. This is not one of those books that you want to stick strictly to canon, because there really is no, like, strict canon. Sure. So, changes are fine, but not all changes are good. No, I think it's important to under think about the reasons for changes. So, mm. I feel like the book was written for the audience. At the time, there was no preconceived audience, because the book and the radio show were coming out at the same time. Well, we're no, talking okay. 1979. So, the BBC radio show came out in 1978. The book version came out in 1979, and there's kind of some interesting trivia about that. Right, but he was writing them both at the same time, is well, my no, point. There he, was no... My point is... That by the time this 2005 movie came out, there was an audience of people who loved the book, which is very different than the book slash radio, where you didn't have this built-in audience that was going to have these heavy I'll opinions. give you that, but... The- That's, that, was, that was the entirety of my point right there. Okay. Was this movie fan service? Or was this movie there to get a new generation of people into the book? What do you think? Because I think that that will determine how you feel about the changes. Does that make sense? You're never going to please all the fans. And that's one of the problems with adaptation. So like when Lord of the Rings came out, there were people who were like, oh, but this one character wasn't in there. So the other thing is the fans kind of know, like the ones who know that there is a game and a TV version, all this other stuff, they know that there are changes and divergence and you do have to do something, but you also want to keep the stuff that people love the most. Do you? Yeah. 
And it depends on what you're changing. I, and again, the question is fan service or new generation. Do you think this movie was made for fan service? Or do you think this movie was made for the Despite next generation? Despite that, you don't want to change the message so much that you completely lose the message from the original source material. Are you not answering my question No, I'm purpose? not. Because I think it's, <laughs> first off, it's an either-or question. And that's a logical fallacy. And I have a whole other thing on that that I do. If you're interested, you could check that out on Facebook and Meetup. But yeah, I don't think that you have this, well, you're doing it for this or that reason. Okay. And if you're trying to get people into this genre, this, this big cultural thing, this is not the way to do it. Because your message is completely obliterated. Well, the I, messages from the book are completely gone. Okay. I We talk about messages towards the end. So let's put a pin in, in messages. <laughs> Because, I'm, yeah, I'm curious to see, hear your messages. What do you want to talk about? The big changes? The little changes? Any okay. changes? So one the, changes the changes you liked? The changes you didn't like? <laughs> one of the changes, uh, and this is... Did you like any of the changes? Well, that's an interesting question. When we get to... Oh, what's his name? The John Malkovich. Sort of, this is really creepy. Now, apparently, this was somebody that Douglas Adams had written. He was going to expand the role. It's mentioned, like the religion is mentioned. They're waiting for the great white handkerchief because it's a sneezed out thing. This character was a very minor character. He wanted to make it a bigger character. It's a diversion in the plot. But it doesn't have Adams' sort of stamp on it. It's really creepy and weird. So it looks like something he intended but didn't flesh out. When you look at the shovels, it looks like something that he intended as a gag. The lemon juicer that makes Zaphod think a little bit better was something that he would have fleshed out at some point, but it isn't. And so it, it looks really clunky. Okay, I really like the fly swatter things hitting you every time you have an idea. But what's the point of it? What's the point? Okay, <laughs> no, no, you don't get to ask me what's the point of that. If you, if there's, I mean, what's the point of any of the absurd things? I think one of the reasons I didn't like the book. Mm. is is a writing style, okay? And I don't feel like you have to have a joke in every sentence for a book to be funny. And I feel like this book was like, why have a sentence without a joke when I could insert a couple random words or throw in a little aside and make it funny? That's not to say that some of the jokes weren't funny. There were some really funny things in the book and there was some really clever writing in the book. But I think it just got oversaturated. Everything had to be a joke. Everything was a punchline. Everything was a one-off. Everything, well, maybe it'll come back. Maybe it won't. Who cares? It's just all absurd. It's absurd for the sake of being absurd. So, okay, fine. If that's what this is, if this is absurd for the sake of being absurd, if this is silly to this level of silliness, then of course we're going to have fly swatters that hit you every time you have an idea. But if you look at the book, everything that's absurd, there is some sort of in-universe reason for it. If you have your towel, it means a thing. If you have the babelfish, it means a thing. For these fly swatters, what's, what's kind of the backstory of it? It's punishing you for having an idea. Why? Because this whole thing, they're on the Vogon planet, which is bureaucracy, which is all about following the rules without questioning. Creativity is bad in the Vogon world. That's why their poems are so bad. But this isn't something that the Vogons created. This is just an independent life form that sort of... That obviously evolved on the same planet as the Vogons. But, okay, so here's one of the jokes in the book, is that the planet, I guess, felt bad. Evolution felt bad for creating the Vogons. And so they made these other really wondrous creatures. So we have, like, these graceful, gorgeous gazelles that the Vogons catch and then sit on them. And it kills them. And so you, the Vogons keep destroying all these wonderful things. You have the jewel crabs, and there are these beautiful crabs. And then the Vogons Vogons destroy them. And so there's a joke within that of how the Vogons are just these awful things and the universe itself, evolution itself, can't change 
what they are. They made a mistake, and that mistake will always haunt it. So the shovels, they're kind of aligned with the Vogons. It looks like something that the Vogons would have created. Sure, either way. But either way, it's fine. It didn't seem but out it of doesn't place to fit have that with there. the in-universe explanation. Okay, but the movie didn't give us an in-universe explanation. And that's one of the issues with the movie, is that it, it adds in these other plots, and then it takes away from the really good stuff that was in the book. <laughs> okay, what was a really good stuff that in the book that explained that? Okay, I actually like the animations that were in the movie. This is one of the things I liked. I did too. Yeah. A little 2D, you know, yeah. Yeah, they were kind of cute little little vignettes, and they were mm-hmm. well done. So that's the sort of stuff. I wanted more of the Hitchhiker Guide to the Galaxy stuff. That's what made the book kind of fun and interesting, is that you get kind of a backstory. Well, why is the world this way? Why is the universe this way? Well, here's the thing. So and you so wanted more guide in the movie. I would have loved to have more guide. I, You know what? We can agree on this. More guide, less romance. Yes. Okay, for sure. Mm. I'll give you that. No contention there. The, the little fly swatter things were fine. They felt totally in keeping... If you came to this b- movie without reading the book, I don't feel like you'd... That's not That's not the thing you'd be like, oh, no, now this movie has lost me. Do you know what I mean? I, f- I have a feeling like being people turned into couches might have been the point where you're like, oh, this movie has lost me. You know, if you weren't ready for the whole rest of it. I will also say that the tone is very different from between the two and how they start. You know, in, in the book, we start with... Our, we start kind of real, right? We, okay, so here's... This is one of the problems I have. So in the book, you have... Arthur Dent, he's sitting in front of the plow, and Ford comes up and says, I have to take you to the pub. No, no, no. Even before that, though, we start with a guy waking up, trying to remember what happened last night. Like, it's mm. very real world. We have, like, this whole little thing about there's not, you know, nobody's happy. It's but this all is about the, the first major divergence that really matters. No, no, no. It's not. Let, let me finish. Okay. So the book starts off with this real life guy. We have this little social commentary about people not being happy with money moving around the planet, but we have this guy. He's just a dude. He's dealing with a hangover. The movie movie, the first thing that happens is we have dolphins singing, okay? From the, the from the opening 30 seconds of both things, the tone is very different. Yeah. So the book starts you in reality and then goes absurd. And you're never really, for me as a reader, I, I didn't, I felt like Arthur, out of place. Like, I don't know what's going to happen because it's so absurd. And I, and I started in a real place. That's the what... Book- Wait, so that's, the book doesn't start right there with Arthur. It starts a little bit before well, that. It, it starts with the, with the guide. Yeah. Yes, but but I mean the protagonist, who we're rooting for. We start with him. In the movie, before we even get Arthur, we get a heavy dose of absurdity. We don't get like, social commentary, you know, something that's like witty. But there, we get freaking dolphins jumping around and like flying out of the water. And it's Broadway. I don't see how that's so much different from the guide starting off the book because we're both starting off from this very odd perspective that the reality that we know is not the reality that we that we should know, I suppose. Yeah, I feel like it just the book starts off almost pure like science fiction and you mm-hmm. could almost it's almost going to maybe even be hard sci-fi. It could for a little while witty but still hard. The movie starts with flying fish. So I, I feel oh, like... they're fish, they're mammals. Well, they're fl- but they fly out of the water. <laughs> flying mammals flying out of the water and up into space. And that's fine because that actually, to me, set the tone for the movie. I was completely bored by that. It was just like, uh, why, why are we having this musical oh, number? I loved it. And that song is really catchy. And I will also say, again, for your audience, my six-year-old sings that song now, days later. Like, it resonated with her, right? I can't stand that song. Well, okay, that's your prerogative, but that doesn't make it bad. And I think that the movie put it there to start the story in this predominant, I mean, just this fundamentally weird-ass way. And you're like, okay, now I I know I'm going to watch a movie that has freaking flying mammals. It's super silly. Nothing I I accept as real or my real life is here. 
This is this is the universe where dolphins are super, you know, intelligent See, and they me, fly. That's, where, I, that's not the biggest divergence that really bothered me. It was a divergence that bothered me a little bit, but not like the one where I went, okay, this is going to be really fucked up in a lot of ways. That, it's just, it's a little too happy and it sort of misses the tone of what's going on with the universe. The whole point of this, the big message that you find, because we do have to talk about themes here, is that the universe does not care about you. The universe just does it. It's not that it's evil. It's not that it's callous. It's just there's nothing there. There's no caring. And so bad things will happen. Your whole galaxy will die for nothing, for just the most absurd, stupid reasons. And that's very much like human life. There are people who die for just stupid, absurd reasons. And it's tragic because they have all this life. They have a purpose. They have family. And then, boom, they're gone. And, and for nothing. And this is kind of the point. It's it's of, of the book. Yes, it is kind of this existential horror. But, uh, you know, let's laugh about it. So the point of this, the thing that really got me... <laughs> No, seriously, this is the thing. So Ford comes up, and in the movie, he's got like a whole waste can thing of beer. And he hands this out, and he's like, okay, everyone, you need a beer. And this is a distraction technique, because I guess he knew that there were going to be bulldozers and construction workers. No, I think he brought the beer for them to drink. Because but then he why wants... is he taking him to the pub? Because Arthur won't talk to him while they're in front of his house. He's so distracted by the house. So Ford's first plan is to get him drunk right there with all this beer. His second plan is fine. I will use the beer as a distraction and get Arthur away. We'll go to the pub and have a drink. I just need him to get boozed up. This is my whole point right here is to booze up Arthur and get him ready. But the dialogue that's missing here is really what kills me. Because the dialogue is what said everything. It is the absurdist of, oh, well, why don't we get you to lie in front of the bulldozer while I go off with my friend and go to the pub? And that's what kills it. That's the whole thing that kills it. It doesn't understand the message of the book. It is a fundamental misunderstanding of the source material. I don't grant that premise. I feel like that joke was fine, but I felt like it, you know, an adaptation is going to have to make choices about the jokes. Yeah, absolutely. But this is one of those that really fundamentally sets up the logic that you see happening constantly. Well, and I'll agree with you that that was a funny line. That was a funny little logic play, you know, and, and what is logical. But why would I, you take that out? Why do you have Ford coming I, up with all this beer and saying, oh, I'm well, I'll just give you the beer. Assuming and then that we'll they take took it out because, like, time and they wanted to move the thing along and maybe people had come to see the rest of the thing and they, they had already decided at some point when they were making this movie to add in the whole subplot about going to the other planet and yada yada so now they're even more succinct on time or limited I should say I, I would have totally taken that out Okay. And so if you want to ask well are you doing this for fan service or are you doing this to you know get a new audience how many new people really got into this and if they like the movie they're not going to like the rest of the series so how are you going to actually add fans to this? See, I don't, and I the don't, people who love it, they were completely turned off by this film. No, that's not true. I know a lot of people who I know loved too. the book or liked the book or enjoyed the book immensely who also enjoyed the movie. And I would say as somebody who did not like the book particularly much, I was fine with the movie. Yeah, and that's kind of the problem is that you don't get the book either. No, I get the You're book, Jennifer. Fan. I well, yeah, I don't. I get the book. I just didn't particularly like the book. There are al elements of it that I found enjoyable enough, but mm -hmm. it 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 took me a long time to read because I kept putting it down and then distracting myself with like cleaning closets and stuff so that I wouldn't have to finish it. It wasn't my book, which is fine. Not every book has to be my book. But that's kind of my point here is that it's not your book, and so you don't feel any particular love or attention or that this is a thing that is important. If it's totally changed, it's like oh, well, it doesn't matter. Because it wasn't something that you cared about. 
Exactly. And that's how I can enjoy the movie without bringing in any emotional baggage or ennui about the fact that they left out one of my favorite jokes. You talked about people getting upset when Lord this of the Rings... This is not ennui. This is disappointment. You talked about Lord of the Rings and people getting all upset because their favorite character, their favorite scene was left out. Okay, that's going to happen when you have something that you love, right? And I... Yes, we've even talked about stuff on this podcast where there was like, oh my god, I loved that scene. Okay, but the thing is, Tolkien had his creation and there weren't reiterations or weren't variations of it. I think the the fans of Hitchhiker understood that it's okay to have variations. It's that you still continue to understand the basic premises and you still understand the basic humor that's involved and what's going on and what the purposes and messages are. And that was completely missing. It's well, there in the radio show. It's there okay. in the book. It's there in the game. So if you're saying that the point of the book was that life doesn't care about you. That's and, one. Okay, hold on. But let's say and, and that that point was missing in the movie. Is that yeah? It's that? such a sugary, ridiculously happy okay. ending. I feel like I didn't. I didn't particularly like the romantic subplot in the movie, and I didn't particularly like the ending either. I don't need a, a sugary happy ending like you. But I feel like they they obviously meant for that to be. They meant for the point, or maybe not the point, but a message of the movie to be this happy ending. And I have to wonder if part of that is because one of them was written and seventy eight, seventy nine, and one is two thousand and five. And if you think about what was happening in our culture in two thousand and five, this is British. It. Uh, the world in 2005 needed a little bit of optimism. Versus the 70s with Vietnam? No, no, no. I'm not saying no, I'm not saying that that was like a happy time, but I'm saying that time period where the people were writing, they're, they're, this was like the beginning of a whole new type of of um of sci-fi, right? Wasn't yeah. this this whole thing? And he was it was he was his background is Monty Python. Of course it was going to be a comedy, but it had to be dark because maybe Douglas Adams, maybe because of the time, we didn't want the super sugary happy. We wanted absurd. That was the form of escape. When they made this in 2005 for American audiences, I don't know if it was, if it's just the way it's, I felt like it got marketed, but we had British people, but we also had a lot of Americans, Zoe Deschanel. Yeah. And she's there for the Americans, right? I feel like they made a choice in 2005 to make it a happy ending movie. Like for some reason, they've said, you know what? Maybe the point is that the world doesn't care about you, but we don't want that to be our point but, right now. Uh, that, that so bothers me. Okay, the Magrathians basically destroyed the universe's economy. That was what they were doing. They were making luxury planets. You could buy these luxury planets. They destroyed the economy. And so they all went into a coma and waited for the economy to like get back enough again, that they could come back and make more money and destroy the economy again. And then at the end, they're like, well, we made this planet and well, the mice don't want it. Do you want it? It's like they're going to fucking give away a planet. That again, it's like, it's completely missing the message. Okay. So one of the screenwriters for this took the original draft. He was not familiar with the source material and was brought in to kind of punch it up. Carrie? That's his first name. Oh, one of them. There were two. Okay, so Robbie Stamp, the executive producer, was one of them. Oh, I, forgot. I was screenplay. Screenplay mm. writers. Carrie Kirkpatrick, who also wrote Smallfoot, Over the Hedge, Chicken Run, James and the Giant Peach. This guy's got a background in kids' movies. Yes, he does. And, which isn't a bad thing, but that, see, again, this movie made my, okay, with the exception of the John Malkovich scary thing. Because that was really creepy. That was very creepy. And what happened to the whale? Other than that... My kid really liked this movie. My six-year-old liked this movie. This movie that was made by a guy really? who writes kids' movies. I was introduced to the radio show. 
at the same age that your daughter watched the movie, and I liked it. That I, that's fine. Okay, I'm but not saying, saying that she was for kids. No, no, yeah, no, no, no. I'm not saying that she wouldn't like the radio show. I'm just saying this movie worked really well for an audience that didn't have a background of the book and who were maybe young at heart and like a happy ending. Yeah, but then why not write your own book? Why not, or not write your own six. book? Right? Okay, but if you're going to make a movie that you want to have that kind of movie, then make that movie. Don't make it based on something else and then destroy the meaning. So remember how you were about Die Hard, where it's like, I kind of like the movie, but they completely ruined the message from the book. That's how I felt about this. So yeah, the movie is a completely different animal. And then you have the book, and I really love the book. I was disappointed to see that they completely just missed the point. I can understand that. The director of this movie... This is beloved Garth Jennings, who had made primarily video shorts beforehand, which might explain the way that some of the transitions of the Mm -hmm. scenes happened, and then most recently made Sing, which is another kid's movie with a highly implausible happy ending. Shocking. Shocking. He's a kid's movie person. And that's fine. You could do kid's movies. This just, it was its own thing. Why would you just destroy its, this thing? So uh, when Probably we watched, the reason why Hollywood makes remakes all the time, right? Okay, Built-in but audience, like a simple favor, money. we had the exact opposite reaction. The book was crap, and we yeah. love the movie, because yeah. the book was crap. So if you take the book, it's not beloved, it's not this thing, it's not any good, and you make it better, fine, have mm-hmm. at it. Mm-hmm. But this was so good on its own. And if you're not a fan, that's fine. It wasn't for you. But for those of us who did enjoy it, and there's a lot, there's a huge fan base. And they're a very loyal fan base. Oh, yes, I know. I've been on Google recently. <laughs> <laughs> One of my Google searches recently was, am I the only person that didn't like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Turns out I'm not, by the way. So hooray for the other 12 of you out there. <laughs> so the point. Slapstick humor. That was never part of the book. Having that embarrassment really? cringe humor. That was never part okay, wait, of the wait, book. Wait, wait, wait. Embarrassment cringe... Okay, so no, when Arthur's at the but, party, but slapstick, I feel like there was it was it was skirting a slap. But I mean, how do you define slapstick? Let's okay, sure when we're, they're we're on, they're on the planet and they're getting hit in the face with those shovel yeah, things, like slapped by the sticks. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Again, freaking okay. I liked that because that is slapstick. They're literally getting, getting slapped. slapped by sticks, which is absurd. Like, so I'm I'm there for that. If they had an in-universe reason, I would have been able to accept it more. So if, if, I, no if I told you it. that there was a cut scene that explained that, that that made it all make sense, then that would be okay. Would that fundamentally change your perspective? Perhaps. Oh, okay. Well, hooray! I don't know if there is one. Or yeah, not. I'm just there saying. isn't. But um, <laughs> it looked like a joke that Douglas Adams had started with. Of okay, this will be funny, and then he would create like a thing or a reason behind it. And then you would go, okay, cool. Because that's a big part of what it is, is, okay, here's this this weird little bit of oddness. Well, here's kind of the story behind it. I don't feel like everything in the book that was odd had a reason, though. I feel like there was a lot of just random oddness for the sake of Well, you could have random oddness, odd. but you would have some reason for you. So, like, you know, we have the story from Mangrathia, and then Ford has that line. This is just a fairy, toy, a fairy story that parents tell their kids when they want them to become economists. Right. So that's a great line after you have that story. Most of a joke is set up. It's set up and presentation. Okay. And that's what the book did fantastically. Set up jokes? Yeah, it sets it up in a very intelligent way. There's a presentation involved. You have the story of Mangrathia, then you have that joke. And the joke is funny because you have that whole great presentation for it. I was fine with Deep Thought watching a little silly cartoon because you have this premise, you have this massive intelligent, just vastly intelligent computer that's watching a little dumb cartoon. So you have the presentation, you have this up. And so that was a joke that worked. There were a few jokes that worked. Um, I know a lot of people didn't like the yarn. I was okay when they turned into yarn. 
My six-year-old loved the yarn. Yeah, the yarn was cute. My six-year-old loved the couches. I thought the couches were fine. The couches were a lot easier to show that this is something crazy pants as opposed to an ocean that stayed still in buildings that moved. Like, that, just from a production standpoint, the couches were I think works great in radio yeah. and works great in a book. But, yeah, for yeah. visual, I was fine with the changes. Plus, the that. couches looked like them. So, that was pretty darn cute. <laughs> that was a visual gag that I liked. Yeah, so I won't say that everything was terrible. I actually kind of like the way they did the Vogons. I think CG is used way too much, and it's not nearly as good as most movie makers think it is. Well, those were puppets. Yeah, and that's what I was saying. Oh, yeah. I, I actually like the Vogons and that they had the nose above their yeah, eyes. and were weird. But, cool. but the, the animatronics were, were done really well, yeah, for yeah, the yeah. most part. So, yeah, there are things I liked. Um, there were some of the jokes, like when Arthur and Ford are about to get jettisoned out, and they're looking at one door and then they fall through the bottom. Yes, that yeah. was a good joke. Hey, yeah. speaking of Arthur and Ford, um, <laughs> did you get a did you get a vibe, or am I just like wanting to find queerness everywhere? You were wanting to find queerness everywhere. Okay, but you didn't get a vibe. In, not in the book. In the book, there was no romance. Mm. But in the movie, I had like this. Huh, Ford. Like, I have to... Why, why did you Why did you save Arthur? And then there's, like, this hug, and then there's, like, what, it, right before they die, and then there's... A, and then, I swear to God, you're a fan fiction writer wanting to come out. No, you no, are. I don't, you so are. Okay, different tangent, but <laughs> anti-fan fiction over here. Um, I know, but this is so fan fiction. This is, you know... No, this is just me and my slasher reference. fandoms and slashes. And, yes, you're such a fangirl. <sighs> okay, so another thing I like. I like the, no, the point okay. of view gun. I thought that was a cool thing. And that totally had Adam's fingerprints all over it. It's a little sexist, but I did like, you know, Zoe Deschanel's line of, you know, it's not going to work on me. I'm already a woman. I was like, yeah, okay. Go, go girls. <laughs> but that, that was something that would be very much in universe. That's something that is like, okay, it's new, but it makes sense. Whereas John Malkovich's character was just fucking creepy. Yeah, we can definitely agree on that. That yeah. whole part was where... And now, I mean, I actually liked that they flushed out there was... Okay, because I feel like... Okay, here's the thing. Mm. In the book, we had this whole talk about when they when the pan-dimensional beings make the computer and the computer's going to give them the answer, the philosophers get all bent out of shape about it. Yes. They're like, don't you dare! Because basically that takes away their jobs. Fundle and magic thighs. Right, but it takes care... It takes away their... their their whole point of being. So, like, religious and philosophy can only exist if they're needed, right? If you have a society that doesn't need them or already has all the answers, then you, then those people don't have jobs. I liked that. That was funny. That was pointing out something in society. We, they took that out in the movie. So instead, what they had, it, so that we would still have some kind of poking fun at religion, we had the the nose people, handkerchief people, within... And a frickin' church service where everyone says, bless you, and they've got their little cowls with their little nose things. Like, mm. okay, it's a weird divergent, but I feel like that was there because they took out the philosophy religious things. And I feel like they took out the philosophy religious things because that is a little too close to home for people. But like... Oh, they totally took out the Babelfish God thing in the theatrical release. It's in the DVD, but not in the theatrical release. Because yes, there are people who would just go, how dare you prove my God doesn't exist. Right, exactly. So, but by making it still look at this with their handkerchief and their noses and whatever like that's obviously just quote unquote that's just absurd so that's safer it's safer to be that absurd as opposed to like being a little too close to home whatever I I, I liked the philosophy you know religious people getting bent out of shape about the, this computer and then the basic the compromise being well it's going to take a long time so you're going to have still plenty of things to do yeah, and you have seven million years to capitalize on this right and that's fantastic you know philosophers uh, threatening to to go on strike. It's a great joke. Philosophers on strike. Yeah. 
no one and then notice. you know they're really there just for the capitalism and we are may not are to exist yeah so that i'm mostly cool with i don't like that you know for a wider audience they take away some of the sharpness because again that was kind of the point is making fun of things and sometimes you have to be kind of sharp yeah okay so one of the the Casting choices that they made back in 2001 is Jim Carrey was supposed to be Zaphod Beeblebrox. And that felt very much like they wrote him for Zaphod Beeblebrox. And Sam Rockwell is not him. And Zaphod comes off very weird. Zaphod is very weird. No, but he's different. It's it's a character assassination almost. Really? Because I felt like Sam Rockwell nailed it. This character was annoying as fuck. And I did not want to hang out with him at all. I felt the same way about the character in the book. Okay, is Zaphod intelligent or not? No. See, and that's one of the things. This is subtle writing, and it's intelligent writing. The thing with Seyfod is he does play himself as stupid, but he isn't actually stupid. He has this whole subplot. You said he, intelligent. That's different. Oh, he's, he's clever, or kind yeah. of if you want. I would, I would say, have said yes if you said if he's clever. Yes. All right, so he's clever. That does not come off in the movie at all. I think he's just like a bumbling fool who's just jumping around and doing weird well, kicks. But I think part of that is because they removed, they they changed the the thing with his brain and the two heads. Yeah, that right? whole subplot is out. And again, that like, was very strange because in in the I didn't like the two head thing that they did in the film because. In the book, it made it look like two to personalities. Actually, yeah, yeah. There's the, it although is. that was really hard to follow in the book because then it would just they, we only talked about the second head occasionally. Like it would have I, whatever. I, I'm not gonna poop on you. Okay, here. but like this is kind of the point. He's an alien. He has two heads and three arms. That almost never shows up. And so you're taking what is a quintessential. This is our alien character, and you're making just a regular human because you almost never see the third arm. You have the technology. You could have done this. They did this in a crappy '80s TV. TV low budget series. You could have the two heads. They could have done it. They could have had the heads look right, at each right. other. And, I'm and there would be a lot of great sight gags just with that. If you want to have those right. kind of sight gags, and instead we get this weird Jim Carrey character, and it's not Zaphod. It misses a lot of the fundamental things that were Zaphod. He was kind of devious. He did his. He actually did his own brain surgery, I suppose, and he left his initials in his brain so that he would know that something had changed, something had happened. Yeah, it and he's, in. there's yeah. this whole subplot about. Who really is the master behind the universe? Mm-hmm. And this comes out in later books. But Zaphod, he was chosen because he is outlandish. He is this weird extrovert who gets everybody's attention, and that distracts everyone from the real power. Which was in both places, in the book and the movie, they made that point that the the job of the president was to be the buffoon that is distracting from the real power. Yeah. And that's what makes Zaphod interesting, <laughs> is because he does play the buffoon, but he's playing a buffoon. And so he's kind of half a buffoon, but he is also playing that because he has the subplot that he's following. Mm-hmm. So they take that out, and he's just an idiot. Yeah, no, I, I get that. But I again, I didn't think it was an actor's problem. I, okay, so Trillian. I I have no problem with Zoe Deschanel, but Trillian was so different. So first off, you and I are kind of the same. We didn't really like the romance. Yeah. And because <laughs> I, I felt like this, this basically the movie was like, love is the answer. Eee. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's solve everything by love. And I like love, y'all. I'm good with love. But it's <laughs> overdone. Love is overdone. It is. Jennifer says love is overdone. Love is overdone. No. (laughs) No. Love is not overdone. Love as the last minute catch-all ghost in the machine. I'm just going to solve everything by saying that everything is now solved because love Love is lazy writing. And no, so it's overdone. Love is in movies, sure. Okay, I'll say this. Romantic love is overdone. There we go. Fist bump. 
solidarity. All right. But Trillian, the whole point of her character is that, you know, she's an astrophysicist. She's a, a mathematician. And then she's on the dole because there's no practical job. That's a joke. And so she goes off into the universe and she's this intelligent person. And there's some hint later on that she might actually be half human because she doesn't care at all that the Earth is destroyed. She is completely disinterested. So um, one thing I kind of like about the movie is it did make her role a little bit bigger because she doesn't really have much of a personality otherwise. But I don't like that they did it by making it a romance. And so she's not her own person pursuing her own agenda, which was very much in the book, she's now the love interest and therefore that's what she's reflecting. Yeah, she's I, there to be her love interest. She was def- yes, agree to all of that, including her bouncing around in undies and being the manic pixie dream girl, mm. floozy at a party. Like, what the hell, man? This movie does not paint women in a very good light because she's, she's at this party, she connects with Arthur, there's like, she gets his costume in the movie, like they have this very cute little meet cute thing, but then because he doesn't want to drop everything and go to Madagascar Gascar with a girl he just met at a party suddenly he's the bad guy like he's like that is played as if he's the one who's doing and something that's not wrong her personality well regardless really? and so then she goes so then Zaphoid shows up oh I've got a spaceship Zaphoid sorry and she goes off Zephoid. with him <laughs> Sam Rockwell shows up and she goes off with him and she's you know whatever whatever and then she finds out like oh my god this is like an epiphany this guy who hit on me while I was talking to somebody else isn't maybe like a great guy oh my god God, it takes him destroying my planet without realizing it. Which is not actually what happens. That's going to be the moment where I'm like, no, this is too far. What? And then, and then it's not even like, I also love Arthur. And now I'm remembering that I love Arthur or I'm, I'm acknowledged. No, it's like, well, Arthur loves me and he's not an asshat like Sam Rockwell. So I guess I'll be with him now. And she was never in love with Zaphod. She was her own person. She was hanging out with him because it was fun. She was never really that into him. And so there was never that huge, oh my God, he's a bad guy. No, she knew he was a shallow asshole. And she just was like, yeah, whatever. It's fun to be on a spaceship and yeah, whatever. I don't care that much. Yeah, I really disliked all of that. So the one thing I liked is she got a bigger role and she had a little bit more personality, but then I hated what they did with her personality. Right, exactly. It doesn't count role. as a benefit if then they give you more to do, the things they give you to do are crappy, sexist, shitty things. <laughs> I almost would have rather them kept her as a one-dimensional background character because then we could have said, oh, she has so much potential instead of, ah, oh, look what they did to her. So that's Trisha. Ford, I don't mind being played by Mo's death. I thought that was kind of interesting. And I didn't hate him, but I didn't think he had the right direction. Hmm. I He was fine. Because Ford is very lackadaisical, but he's also interested in having fun. And I got that. So to me, that was just more of a lack of direction, not a problem with the actor. Fine with Martin Freeman as Arthur. I, I didn't have many other casting issues, but Trillian and Zaphod were ones where I just went, ah, that just that doesn't But fit. I feel like you also really didn't like what they did with the character. So the casting may or may not have been a part of that. It's more the character changes. True enough. You, yeah. Yeah, because Deschanel, and I like Sam Rockwell and other stuff. I just felt like his direction and the writing of the character, again, they kind of missed the point. Sure. What about Marvin? All right. So Marvin, again, Alan Rickman. 
Yep. Yeah, awesome. yeah, and I, I will say this that I loved about the movie is that the voice actors were all really good. Yeah. They were all really good voice actors. They did an excellent job. The thing I had about Marvin is that the irony of Marvin is that he is a depressed robot, but he's not supposed to look depressed. He kind of looks depressed in the movie. He and definitely it, looks depressed. Yeah, he, he's he's just kind of this frumpy little bumble. I don't remember how they describe him. They don't him really describe book. him. He's okay. just kind of an android. It feels like I, it I, misses I, the point of you have this android who's got this great brain, and there's... There's another message of how kind of technology is all sort of rubbish and shit and the things that are supposed to make your life better don't in a lot of ways. So when Trillian is taking Arthur around the Heart of Gold and she's like, look, here's a lightsaber that cuts bread and isn't this awesome and, you know, it will do this little mental thing and give you exactly what you want to eat. And yet the whole point of that in, in the book is that technology is kind of rubbish. You have these things that are supposed to make your life better and they kind of make them worse. It's like you get that really cool coffee maker and it turns out to be something that you don't have any way of understanding how to make a cup of coffee. Or it's bad for the environment. I'm looking at you, Keurig. <laughs> It's stuff like that. It's the technologies that's supposed to make your life better, and it doesn't. And that was the thing with the Art of Gold. The doors slide happily, and so you're annoyed with them. It can't make a cup of tea. It's supposed to be this amazing thing, and yet it just fails. And the door sign, okay. the door sign didn't work for me. It's, I, it okay, yeah, like wait, hold on, hold on, wait, wait. I want a monologue. The door sign sounded like it didn't sound like signs of happy contentment. It sounded like somebody who just figured out the joke. It's like, oh. That doesn't sound happy. I thought it sounded like somebody who had just relieved themselves in an exceptional sort of way. Fine. That works for me. <laughs> but they did not sound like like really, oh, this is the joy. Yeah, that's oh, not oh. happiness that I feel then. Usually it's, it's more relief. relief. Yes, those doors <laughs> sounded relief. Relieved. Um, okay, but before, okay, back to the book. Mm. I, I will admit that I, I only read it the one time recently and one time long, long time ago. So and it wasn't, maybe I should have read it as a closer read, but I, I totally missed that thing about technology. These things that are supposed to make your life better actually make it worse. My takeaway from the books dealing with technology was the absurdity of just of technology itself. It felt like it was a juxtaposition between like the babblefish, which was not technology, it was organic, versus all of their newfangled things that didn't really work the way that they wanted them to do. To me, and again, not a close read, it felt more like a um, a talk about nature versus technology. The people, the, if you want to say that there were bad guys, they were the technology-driven Magatheans who were building planets and kind of set, you know, okay, I know you've got stuff to say. I got a different kind of lesson about technology and stuff than, than you did. Okay, so one of the things I have with the John Malkovich character is there are no actual evil characters, at least in the Hitchhiker's Guide. You have the Vogons who are the villains, but they're not actually evil. And right, and they drop away in the book. They're really only there at the yeah. beginning. They're the bureaucracy. Yeah. I will and say that the addition of them later, whatever, but the addition of Arthur queuing because he's British and going and saving her with paperwork, I found funny. Okay, that was cute. That was, and it felt very Adams, and it felt very on par with the universe yeah. and he all of that. He saves her with the expert you know, paper filling. So, yeah. And I love that, okay, it's a little tiny thing, but when he's filling out the forms, the table that they have for him is high, so he has to put his arms way up. And the pens are huge. And the pens are huge. And it's like, at that, that is satire about pointing pointing fun at how bureaucracy is sometimes just there to make your life more difficult. So, oh, yeah. there's yes. nothing wrong. There's nothing inherently wrong with being organized. There's nothing inherently wrong, but the way humans use it is it is a tool of power. So, the tool is not at fault. It's the way the tool is being used. Fine. That's, yes. Okay, so we agree. So... <laughs> Well, anyway, yeah, I disagree but, with how it's used. 
you know, you have a very positive use of it, and I don't. No, no, no. I have a positive view of how it was intended to be used, or the tool itself can be used. I understand that it is not always used well. In fact, a lot of times it's used poorly, which is the point I felt, one of the points of this movie slash book situation was that they're using the tool of bureaucracy in a shitty way to hurt people or to, to keep them down or whatever. Which is how humans use it, which is why it's a great comment on humanity. Which is fine. Okay. I'm agreeing with you. I'm okay. saying I got that from bureaucracy. I didn't get that from technology the way you did. Yeah, but that's the heart of gold. And so that's why I was... You know, it, the, the one scene in the movie that really made this point is when they're in the escape pod and the little handle is like too small to use and it's at an awkward angle and they don't know how anything works. That was the only one where you kind of go, yeah, that's technology being really, really stupid. See, I, I felt like a lot of the technology being stupid was just part of that absurd, the universe's crazy pants and nothing makes sense. But that's my point. There, There's a purpose behind it. There's a meaning behind it. And that's why the movie misses out. If you have this cool little lightsaber toast thing that she's waving in his face, which seems really dangerous. I mean, that's really dangerous. Toast. Why are you waving it in that person's face? Damn it, Trillion. Plus also from a logistic standpoint. If you cut a piece of bread and you have now toasted both sides, so the piece that you are taking away with you, the piece that is now removed from the loaf... Which side do you butter? Well, it's got <laughs> toasted on both sides, just like any other piece of toast that comes out of a toaster. It's toasted on both sides. Yeah, but but, usually but no, the next piece, the part that's now what you have is a loaf with a toasted end, which means when you cut that slice, you have a cold toast slice and a Hot warm toast, slice yeah. on the other side, and that is just anarchy. <laughs> This is shitty technology, and they just didn't make that point in the movie. If they made that point, it's like, okay, that's cool. Okay. But they didn't. They didn't. I, and what, I guess what took a to circle way back here is I didn't get that point from the book either. So I didn't miss it in the movie. I thought that the point about bureaucracy was in the book, but not as well developed as the point about bureaucracy was developed in the movie. So there you go. All What's right. shittier, technology or <laughs> bureaucracy? <laughs> and I like technology. I'm just saying that he points it out in a very funny way. Technology is amazing. I am really glad that we live I in the future. I love technology. I'm just saying it's funny all the times it fails us. Oh, for sure. I'm yeah. just wondering if maybe they were like, huh, we don't really want to say how technology is bad, um, even in a funny way, because, you know, like, maybe we want some product placement by Apple or, you know what I mean? But but everybody hates bureaucracy. That's easy. And maybe that's just lazy writing. Like, it's easy to say bureaucracy sucks and standing in lines is awful. Like, we, that's universal, right? But I don't like neutering a message for commercialism. No, no, I'm with you. I'm just wondering about the motivation. So the lessons that I kind of took away <laughs> from this was that there's a difference between improbable versus impossible. Yes. And I that that's kind of an uplifting, optimistic thought. So I liked that. I did get the idea that we're not as important as we think we are, which is similar to what you were saying, like the universe doesn't care about you and shitty things. Okay, so this is one of the things I actually liked that is kind of one of those messages that you have to suss out is that whole idea of point of view. You have an earth that's destroyed because, you know, bypass. And I find it very chilling that in the movie, it was silent. In the book, there's this big silence and there's this big noise. And so we, we go out in a bang. But in the movie, it's that much more chilling when it's quiet because nobody cares. You die in a whisper. All these, you know, 7 billion people, they're just gone. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to point of view, you know, the earth is considered nothing. It's destroyed. And then as they find out it's the most valuable thing in the entire universe because it was the answer to life, the universe, and everything. And everybody's put all this money into it. So that to me was kind of hysterical. No, but I liked the idea because we are very uh, carbon chauvinist, human, whatever. Like, we're the dominant species. And both the book and the movie made the clear, like, no, humans are not the dominant species. So take your take yourself, check your ego. I love that the dolphins and the humans, so humans, we think we're so sophisticated because we have war and we make 
make, you know, houses and do the stuff. And dolphins, they just We frolic. have bureaucracy. <laughs> they only frolic in the ocean and have sex and fun. And there are the dolphins going, yeah, humans are stupid because they make wars and do all this <laughs> stuff. And we frolic and have fun. I thought that was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> but they know how to sing a nice Broadway song when they need to. <laughs> and then... Away they go into the universe. Yeah. Anyways, um, we're not so, as you're not yeah. as special as you think. Like everybody, I I liked that. That's that's a little bit of a pessimistic idea, maybe, but it it's or pragmatist, maybe. Let's see here. Um, questions are more important than the answer. But the thing with the question is that it was poorly defined. You know, it's like what's the, the you know what's the question of life, the universe, and everything? What's the answer to this? Well, you don't have a well defined. And this gets back into philosophy. And so uh, Douglas Adams loves to make fun of philosophy and he enjoys philosophy but there's also sort of the joke with uh, room fundle and magic thighs where like we may exist or not but we might not but we may and so that sophism is sort of uh, I guess intellectual navel gazing to a ridiculous degree and if you look at the characters who kind of cope best with the world they're the ones who don't do that like Ford Prefect just kind of wants to tool around the universe and have fun he's a dolphin <laughs> he's a dolphin in alien form sure I know I what I felt was was that it was saying people decided that in order to be happy, they needed this answer. They couldn't even really define the question because when they went and they first said, what's the answer? The computer's like, to what? And they're like, life, the universe, and everything. That's not a question. Those are three noun clauses, (laughs) right? I mean, there wasn't even a question mark. So I feel like this is pointing fun at people who want something without even knowing what it is they want. Now, that I definitely got the vibe that this was about don't rely on some external thing to make you happy, especially if you can't define what it is that you think that you're missing. You're not missing anything. That's an interesting take. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I and then, that, so it's an interesting. Day. And then when they when they're like really pr- so then the computer's like, "You know what? I'm just going to make you live for a long time not knowing." And I I kind of feel this is again headcanon. I feel like the computer was going to teach them a little bit of a lesson or maybe Douglas Adams as the author here in saying, "Okay, I'll give you an answer at some point." It's like when my daughter says, "Can I do this?" and I go, "Someday." You know, or <laughs> Ask me again in an hour and hope she forgets, right? And then she doesn't. And then I actually have to come up with an answer. So, like, go away and try to be happy for a little while. And you would not believe how many times she goes in the other room and gets distracted and then doesn't want to do the original thing because she found something else to occupy her time. <laughs> Parenting for the win. I will so, say I loved Helen, Helen Mirren as Deep Thought, the voice of Deep Thought. That was that was a very good – yeah, again, yeah. the voice acting was great. Okay, so go away. Do something else for a while. You know, I kind of feel like the implication here is don't think about this. Like, do something else. But did they? No. They were like obsessed about it for that's millions my point, of years. That's my point, they get navel-gazy right? and it's too ridiculous and to so then, you're not even living your life anymore. Right. And so then they're given this bullshit answer. Just this random answer. I feel like the computer could have said anything. It could have said squirrels. But or, you also have the idea that you're searching for truth, but really you just want capitalism and, and you're getting lost in the material. Sure. So there's, there's that yeah, hypocrisy that's, that's of it all. There's hypocrisy of it. So they're given like an answer. And, and this, I feel like, is the next level of that. When you define your happiness based on something external and you don't even know what it is that you're looking for, but you know you don't have it somehow. Somehow you know you don't have it. And then somebody gives something to you and they tell you, this is going to make your life better. This is the cure-all. Default never says that. No, no, I know. But they, okay. they said, give us the answer. And Default was like, fine, I will give you an answer. Here is an answer. Here is the thing that you think will make your life better. 
And then, of course, they go, no, that's not what I wanted, because that's not as defined as I wanted. That's not as full as I wanted. That doesn't make me feel the way I wanted to feel. So now it's your fault and you need to fix it, Deep Thought. Give us the actual question that we negated to ask in the first place. Like, do you know what I mean? I really, What I really like about Deep Thought is Deep Thought actually shows a lot of wisdom and compassion. You're not going to like it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, deep, I, thought. He, deep Thought. I said he, but you know, in the, I, I like the movie She. I like Deep Thought with the Hello Mirror voice. I mm-hmm. think that's beautiful. So Deep Thought, it has kind of that wisdom and it kind of understands sort of, a, I don't want to say humanity, but sort of living creatures and how bizarre and, and unfulfilled and unhappy we are. But I find it interesting that the androids, the robots, they have personality, even though they're this artificial construct. And then you look at the Earth, which is supposed to be organic, and it's really just a, a big, huge construct. So you have that, that inverted. Again, I want to point out what I said earlier about nature versus technology, because I really got that nature versus technology juxtaposition in the book. Mm. And that like, you know, the babel fish, it's, it's, it's the organic thing that is the most amazing thing. Right? But that's, yeah, that's way, what more, saying. way more exciting than any of the technology that they have. Well, I don't know, the, the improbability drives pretty damn cool. And having an electronic book is pretty damn cool. Uh, How very prescient. (laughs) (laughs) It's a Kindle. There's really cool stuff. But like the Hitchhiker's Guide, it it has its flaws as good as it is. That's the out-of-context quote that I'm planning on using later. Jennifer says that it has flaws. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yes, it does. And and because it can't have everything, so it has succinctly described the Earth as, you know, mostly harmless. And that's, again, you know, technology is like 95% there, but it's 5% that drives you nuts. Always. (laughs) Anyways, yes. So again, questions more important than the answers. Maybe the idea is that don't rely on external things to make you happy. Find happiness from within. As long as you're not going to just say love, because then I'm going to roll my eyes. Okay, but I'm going to go back to something that we started off with, and we had a huge disagreement, and that was the restaurant at the universe joke. Okay. So if this is a standalone, if the movie or book, if the movie was a standalone, uh-huh. you can get away with that joke, but it really fucking misunderstands everything. And that's, I mean, you're like, okay, it's kind of a funny little take on this sort of, it, to me, it's a tired joke. I've heard that trope before. Oh, you're going the wrong, we had that in the last unicorn. Oh, you're going the wrong way. Ha ha ha. But the end of the universe is chronological, not geographic. And Douglas Adams was a smart, intelligent writer. And there was some actual science that went into this. And it okay, the I point. totally could see that being an Adam's joke. Okay, let's get into the spaceship and go to a place. Oh, well, we went the wrong way, so we have to turn around when there's no the, turning around. The, oh, the we, infinity we, drive. The whole point of the infinity drive is that it takes you to every single point in the universe at the same time. He was that, smart enough to write that, and then he would go, that's the whole that point of the it, infinity drive. That, and the heart of gold is that you go everywhere in the universe. You don't have monologuing. to find... Yes, I am monologuing. You don't have to go to Magrathia. You put in the infinity drive, you turn into a penguin or a couch or a ball of yarn or whatever you have. And then you're there because it's in every single point in the universe. You don't have an end of the universe with the infinity drive. It completely misunderstands the technology there. It completely misunderstands how intelligent Douglas Adams was in creating this universe. It's it's almost like it's absurd for the sake of being But it's absurd. not. It's not. It's just stupid. And it misunderstands everything. And then if you were going to create a second movie, oh, it's chronological. You're at the end of the universe. What the fuck is that? No, it's supposed to be at the end of the universe time-wise. And this is why it's... No, no, this is bad. 
that alone, you have the missing dialogue in the beginning with Ford and Arthur, which is so iconic, and it does set up the universe, and the absurd logic of, well, you're just going to lie in here in place of Arthur, and then we're going to nip off to the pub, and Although you don't have work. Ford bringing, guy, like, uh, you know, big things of beer, does. because they could just go back inside and drink the beer. It makes no sense. You have these things that make no sense in the movie when they make these changes. You lose so much of what made the book funny, and you may not get British humor, but I do, and it was funny, and it messed it up. Okay, you can talk now. Okay. It was a gag. It was a stupid gag. No. Yes. It was a gag about going the wrong way, which you cannot go the wrong way in space. Therefore, it is funny to pretend that you can go the wrong way when there's no way to actually go the wrong way. That is a joke that you don't have to find funny, but it's not the end of the universe. Oh, but it is the end of the world. <laughs> So See, the entire my joke, time they're using now. the improbability drive. Do they not know how it works? That's definitely the impression that I got. They kind of do, especially Trillian, because Trillian is a smart person. Yeah, but not in the movie. Unfortunately, no. And that's, again, the <laughs> character assassination. Sure. He didn't seem... Sam Rockwell did not seem to know how... Again, character assassination. When you insult your, your intelligent characters and you make them stupid, what do you expect? You had intelligent or clever characters. And if you want to say uh, Sam Rockwell was clever instead of intelligent, Trisha was definitely intelligent. These are were smart in their own way. They wouldn't make that mistake. The they whole, understand the technology but behind But I, I feel this. like, I mean, the fact that they put an, a coordinates into the ship or they're trying to get somewhere in their ship and their magical, improbable spaceship takes them other places isn't an actual problem. No, it's not a problem that they have the improbability drive. It's, it's a problem that they understand how it's used. That's the whole point of them moving But you around. can understand how something's used and you still have a built-in probability that it won't work the the way it's supposed to work, and will instead send you somewhere else. But that's how they find Microthea. They actually do this. They do this multiple times. They they make it work in this way. Yeah, but they accidentally like they also so, get sent somewhere else. It's like they point. suddenly forget how to drive. I no. I feel like it's more like. You know, when you put your car in... Okay, I don't drive. But if you put your car into reverse and then something happens in your engine and it like, misfires and you hit the gas and instead of going backwards, you go forward, you're like, oh, well, that was highly unlikely that that little tiny spark or the, the squirrel sleeping in my engine block would have this effect. But it technically happened. That doesn't mean I don't know how okay, to drive. Okay, but that's a failure technology. That means the improbability drive isn't working. But they know how it works and that is how it works. But You're it, saying it doesn't work like it's supposed to work and it works in this completely different no, way. No, I'm saying it's working exactly how it's supposed to work. No, it's an improbability have... drive. Sometimes it does improbable things. Like turn people into penguins and couches yes. and yarn. Fine, but that's what it's supposed to do. And it's canon that that's what it's supposed to do. That's how it works in universe. You can't just suddenly have something that doesn't work the way it's been working the entire time just because you feel like making a gag. It's a bad joke. I don't I don't agree. I think it's a I think it's in keeping with everything else. But then you also I don't think, understand the book. Okay, seriously. I understand the book. Just because I didn't find it as funny as you did does not mean I don't understand it. Apparently you do. I do what? Understand it? Well, <sighs> If you're going to say that this joke is acceptable because, ah, it's it's geography and not chronology, I'm going to say that you are not that impressed with the message to begin with. It isn't a thing for you. This has nothing to do with messages. This has to do with a gag. I like the slapstick of slip sticks slapping people, right? Okay, but I why do you have a lemon juicer on his head? I, that was... That, 
sure, whatever. Just as much absurd as anything else in this. But okay, seriously, my notes in this movie were like, note, chronological, note, what's happening to, and eventually I just wrote WTF, man. Because, like, whatever. We're, we're in an absurdist universe. Now, I understand that in the book, according to your reading of it, everything made a certain logical sense and was explained. And in the movie, that is not the case. Fine. Two separate things. In the movie, it's an absurd world. There are some rules, but they're not always internally consistent. And there are some rules that are always internally okay, consistent. Okay, so not internally consistent. Give me an example. I don't know. I watched it once. I'm just saying. <laughs> the thing is that it's... <laughs> Okay, the freaking improbability drive sometimes takes them where they want to go and sometimes doesn't. But that was a change in the movie. That was not a change. That in is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the movie. In the movie, this universe does not seem like it makes all the logic. It feels like a place where almost anything can and might happen. In which case, a crazy ass sight gag about the spaceship going the wrong direction is fine. It's not but worth. It's not a hill worth dying drive. on. That was the thing that made him go to another point in the in the solar system is that they had the wrong improbability drive. So the improbability drive still works the same way. That was how uh, John Malkovich got them to go to his planet. And he held up, oh, this is the improbability drive you wanted that would actually take you where you want to go. So now there's multiple improbability drives? Yes. They made so he stole like when they were building it he stole one. Did you notice that he was hit, like? Yeah, but up. I mean like. It, but it, that's why it didn't work. So it still is. It just felt like yet another random absurd thing. The guy suddenly didn't have legs, but he had legs before. And that's kind of my point is that the movie fails in a lot of ways with its plot when they make these sort of changes. Okay, but I don't consider that a failure as much as. But there is a change in the plot that sure, makes it, it improbably drive. I say they're fine. two separate things. The book seems to have a little bit more of a logical a relationship with logic, at least to understand what logic is. And the movie is just crazy pants, absurdist, and in the world of crazy pants, absurdist things, having yet another thing that doesn't actually make a lot of sense, it's fine, because it's in a world of crazy pants, absurdist things. And then we get back to, if you want to make that film, fine, just don't base it off of this. You can have your crazy pants, absurdist sci-fi comedy, and that's awesome, just don't do it with this. Sure. All right. So, was it worth your time, Kalia? <laughs> was it worth my time? You know, here's the thing, and I, I you know, people are going to hate me, but I feel like the jokes from the book are so in culture that you don't have to read the book to get the jokes, some of the jokes, to know what it's referencing or to find, you know, that it hangs in the air like bricks don't, right? That's funny. It's funny whether you read it or didn't read it, okay? I never quite got the hang of Thursday. Whatever. There's all these quotes and people quote them all the goddamn time. And that is, that is, that is fine. So if you really want to know, like, what was the sentence before that joke about bricks? read the book. If you don't care because you're like, I kind of feel like I understand the joke about bricks, then you don't necessarily need to read the book. Okay. But if you really like British humor and you have not read this book and you want to see what the fuss is about, then by all means, read this book. That's my feeling on the book. I know that you're going to say everybody should read this book because it's a, an amazing book and you love this book, right? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. That's cool. So, but if you don't like it, that's cool too. You're allowed not to like it. Yay! <laughs> and I will say, if, if British humor, if you don't find Monty Python funny, this is probably not the book for you. True. Okay? I do not find Monty Python funny. So this was probably not the book for me. Okay. Fair. 
As for the movie, I feel like if you are a fan of the book, this movie might have problems for you. It might not. Again, I know people who liked both. They liked them for different reasons. They liked them. They have different expectations, whatever. So fine. But be aware, if the book is precious to you, that the movie is probably going to bother you the way any adaptation of something that is precious to you will, whether or not the movie on its own is good. And I will say, if reading the book does not sound like fun, the movie is shorter, it's super freaking absurd, there are dolphins that sing, and my six-year-old kind of liked the movie. So there you go. My perspective here, I liked the radio show. I like the book. Uh, the TV series was okay. Not great. I can't talk about any of those because that yeah, wasn't no, what we're I'm doing just letting here. you know my perspective this oh, time. You had your chance. Now it's my turn. So, yeah, the, the book feels like a fleshed out version of the radio show. And I don't think that if you like the book, you won't necessarily hate the movie. You might like the movie. You might not. I do know people, including your husband, who liked the movie and they were fine with it. You know, some of our mutual friends love the movie and that's cool. I had issues with the film. So for me, the film was meh. I didn't absolutely hate the film. I thought there were some good things that they did. I liked some of the changes they made. There's a lot of stuff where it just felt like they lost the heart of what made the series, not just the book, but the radio show, really fun and interesting. So that's my two cents. There you go. All right. So book, fuck yes for me. Movie, meh. Book, meh for you. Movie was, yeah. Yeah. I I think my actual word on my screen is eh. <laughs> I would absolutely agree. If you don't like Monty Python, this is not the book for you. Yeah. Save your hate mail. It's never going to change. And the book is short. The book is like 200 pages. Yeah. It's 170 okay. in, my, in my edition. All right. Yeah. It. So, yeah. Yeah. I have the complete and unabridged. <laughs> I have whatever he had on the shelf. So. Yeah. I just got the most epic eye roll. <laughs> Pages and Popcorn Podcast was brought to you today by British Wit Coffee. Oh, we should have been drinking tea. I mean, not really, because tea kind of sucks. But tea? Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm sorry. That doesn't really. I just really wanted to watch her face. Tea does <laughs> not suck. I have you to. Have no okay. idea. You know what? I literally <laughs> practiced for this today because I was good at knowing how you feel. Because I don't know if you guys have caught this, but she's not super subtle. Knowing how Jennifer feels about the book and the movie, I was totally going to pretend to come in here and be like, the book was trash. The book was awful, but the movie changed my life. It was, um, I watched it four times. I think it's the best. I'm going to quote it. Can we play a clip? But I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do that because I wanted her to, to continue to make this podcast with me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we can argue and fight and still be, I guess, co-podcasters. That's right. Well, I guess if we agreed on everything, it wouldn't be fun. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We have just, our disagreements. It'd be an echo chamber. And yeah. So. And I respect your views, even if I don't agree with them. Oh, that's very nice of you. Too bad it's not reciprocal. I was going to say. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yes. I also respect your views. Um, even though, I mean, yeah, I... Again, I really just do feel like it, it, this, okay, because we, the first book we talked about was The Mist. And I know I'm just, I'm sounding like a, just a grumpy ass person, but I was like, <laughs> I don't like horror books, but sure, I'm going to read this one. And then, wow, there's elements of this horror book that I didn't like because they are horror things that I don't like, whatever. So this was the same thing. I'm not a huge fan of this type of British humor. I found things in it that I liked. I found a couple messages. Like, I, I wouldn't say that I am bitter about spending my time on it, you know, or anything like that. Um, I think you also got really saturated in a weird way. Yeah. And, and again, like that, I mean, it and really I, has I to do with... I was like, I was... Right. First time, I never This heard baggage that, that we bring to stuff can yeah. really, really cloud. Like, 
Freaking I knew all about pan-galactic gargle blasters and slarty ball fast and don't panic and like all of this stuff. And it was like, it was a weird group. Like if you didn't know what that was, like you were made fun of. And so like yeah. when I had to actually ask what a pan-galactic gargle blaster was at one point, like I got mocked, you know? So I, I don't have, the, and then again, I read all the books together, like not, so it was really hard to separate. What I remembered before we read this together was the beginning with the, with the bypass and this house getting, you know, going to be knocked down and then they get onto the Vogon ship and the bad poetry. And then I was like, I think at some point there's a cow that talks to them before they eat it. Yes. Like, it's restaurant at the end of the universe. Right. That was like my entire, I, I just glossed because it wasn't memorable. I, I, I just remember the quotes because that's apparently what we're supposed to be remembering. So if you were, I guess, fresh to it and you didn't have people making fun of you, and I'm sorry they did that because that's mean and, you know, nerds can sometimes be cruel. Gatekeeper nerds. Yeah. I do not like gatekeeping. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm more the person of, oh, you haven't found this out? Oh, this is wonderful. Come and, and, you know, join me with this and go on a journey rather than, oh, you don't know about it? Ha ha, you suck. That's yeah. just the wrong attitude to take. It really is, especially if you want people to like your yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. So come on the journey with me. Don't shame and gatekeep. So whatever. And you do like Star Trek and you like your sci-fi. It's just this is not Yes. Your, yeah. Your and it, okay. So you're off, wearing the star, the I am star literally wearing a Star Trek hoodie right now. Yeah. No. When She's we, a red shirt. So, you know, I get to kill I, um, <laughs> And this is Picard's. I'm just, okay. okay, next generation over here. Um, <laughs> yeah, at one point when I said I wasn't really enjoying the book, Jennifer said, oh, you don't like sci-fi. And I said, no, 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 I like sci-fi. No, I really like sci-fi. I just, I don't like. This, this, it's the comedy part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And have you ever watched a movie that was sucky, but then like you can't stop quoting it? Yeah. I feel like that this book is that for me. Like the book, it wasn't sucky, but, but it wasn't highly enjoyable, but it's, there are definitely lines in it that are really memorable. Mm -hmm. And that's, and they're fun to just drop into conversation, especially if you're hanging out with nerds who then you've got some nerd cred because you're like, yes, I also read that book. Pages and Popcorn Podcast was brought to you today by British Wit, Coffee Not Tea, Cough Drops for Jennifer again. <laughs> Someday she'll be finished. Someday I will stop coughing. <laughs> Someday. Anyways, thank you so much for listening. Let us know if you felt that the book or the movie was worth your time. Just save your hate mail because I'm not going to read it. <laughs> Au revoir.